Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This sermon is really a completion of last week's sermon um, that looked a lot at the overall picture of Genesis 1 um, and that God has made the world in six calendar days. Um, So this is a a follow-up to that, focusing a little bit more on Adam and Eve and the importance of believing in a literal Adam and Eve. So just as background, that's where we are. There's a t-shirt. You know, you can write anything on a t-shirt these days. There's a t-shirt that is, says this. Evolution is just a theory. Then again, so is gravity. What's the point of that statement? That those who reject evolution are just as foolish as those who reject gravity. And I will tell you that you cannot live in today's world and not feel that basic message everywhere you look. Go to a museum, evolution is accepted and promoted. Go to a national or a state park and you will be told that the earth is billions of years old. Public schools assume this fact. Ever since the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, it has been increasingly unpopular to stand up against evolution in America. This is the basic premise of a website called BioLogos founded by a man named Francis Collins. And according to Biologos, it is critical to the survival of evangelical Christianity that it be reconstructed to embrace and encompass Darwinian evolution. Nothing could be farther from the truth. It is my belief That to embrace evolution will result in the destruction of biblical Christianity. I do not deny that there are many Christians who also believe in evolution. There may be some here today. The Bible does not make one's position on creation a condition for salvation. And in the short run... Avoiding the mental conflict required to oppose such a widely accepted theory as evolution may seem wise to some. Why spend our time debating theories of creation when we could use that time discussing Jesus and the cross and the resurrection? And I would agree that we must use wisdom in picking the right time to confront evolution in our discussions. I don't always begin in discussing with people my Calvinist beliefs either when I'm talking about Christ and the gospel. But evolution must not be embraced by the church. And it must not be taught from our pulpits. Nor should we try to teach the Bible in such a way as to avoid the conflict with the theory of evolution. We don't need to turn the Bible into a science textbook to do this, 
But neither must we take the position that the Bible has nothing to say about biology or science in general. The original audience may not have been fighting evolution per se, but they were fighting the competing theories as to the origin of the world. And just like those false ideas needed to be confronted back in those days, so we need also to confront evolutionary ideas that deny clear biblical teachings. With that being said, I want to go ahead and read Genesis 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of, the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature that's one verse we're going to be focusing on and the lord god planted a garden in eden in the east and there he put man the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the lord god made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he, could call, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The Bible emphatically claims that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. That means that he was not formed 
from the evolutionary development of lower animal life forms as evolution affirms. At this point, either the Bible is wrong or evolution is wrong. There's no way to reconcile the two of them together. The conflict with Eve is even more pronounced when you consider what we just read, that Eve was formed by God taking from the rib of Adam and forming her and then bringing her to the woman that directly is opposed to the evolutionary uh, idea of the development of man and woman. There's no legitimate way to bring those two together. This is why believing in the historicity of a literal Adam has always been the backstop that has protected evangelical Christianity from going over the cliff of evolution. It's always been that. And for this reason, Carl Truman, one of uh, uh, a man that teaches at Grove City College, but one of uh, famous uh, conservative theologians of our day and historians, writes this. The question of the historicity of Adam may be the biggest doctrinal question facing this generation. I got to thinking about what it, is, has, um, what it has taken for me to hold to a regular day view of creation, to the historicity of Adam. And I started thinking about that issue, and I came up with five musts. If we're going to hold as a church and as God's people to a literal Adam and Eve, as depicted in Genesis 2, uh, what are we going to have to do? What are the musts that we're going to have to uh, um, embrace? I came up with five of them. Not that these are the only ones. These are just ones that I thought were important. The first, and this is what Danny was getting at at the beginning of the service today, we must be willing to be called fools. And so I ask you the question. Are you willing to be called a fool? The message of the cross has never been popular. Jesus was loved by many people, but he was also ridiculed and mocked by most of the world. It is often said that persecution is not, does not really exist in America. I disagree. Certainly we are not at gunpoint forced to believe something one way or the other. But I do not want us to underestimate the force of the social pressures that exist if you believe in a literal Adam and Eve. No one wants to be called ignorant or foolish. And the truth is, if you want to hold to a regular day view of creation and a literal Adam and Eve, you will be considered foolish. course this doesn't mean that we should be foolish it means that we should not clamor for the respect of the world and that means that we will be disrespected by those who are very much respected in our world but I find it interesting that even if you believe in a position of theistic evolution you will still not be respected by the world. 
Francis Collins, I mentioned him earlier, who's the uh, founder of BioLogos, he actually was appointed by President Obama to lead the National Institutes of Health. Good for him. In response to his appointment, P.Z. Myers, a, biology, a biologist of the University of Minnesota, says, I don't want American science to be represented by a clown. Think about that. Someone that has an avowed Christian, believing in evolution, gets appointed to a high position, and the, so some of the leading biologists still consider him a clown. Now, two takeaways from that. By continuing to cling to a God who actually created the world, albeit through evolution, I believe Collins is still willing to be called a fool. So good for him, right? I mean, at least he will not abandon God entirely. He continues to say that God did it all. Good for him. But I also think you need to take away that if you want the respect of the world, if you really want the respect of the world, Theistic evolution does not go far enough. You must go to all the way to atheistic Darwinian evolution. So again, I ask the question, are you willing to be called a fool for your faith? Secondly, I think that we still must engage science. If we want to hold to a regular day view of creation, we must continue to engage science. We can't fear science. We can't reject science. We must engage with science. Thankfully, there are many scientists of every major discipline who have held to a regular day view of Genesis and a literal historical Adam. Young people especially, if God gives you a propensity towards scientific, the scientific world, that's a worthy calling. Pursue it with all your heart. But be expected, but expect, excuse me, but expect to be challenged to believe evolution. Do not expect to continue holding to a regular day view of creation apart from struggle. Expect to be challenged by those who are not Christians, but also be expected to be challenged by those who are Christians. And I would argue that it is more difficult to be challenged by those who are Christians than it is to be challenged by those who are not. Now, as you engage science, I want to give you a few reminders, four important reminders as you engage science. First reminder, Christians can be wrong. Galileo is usually the example given. He was opposed by the church leaders of his day who were convinced that the sun revolved around the earth. Those Christians were wrong. What is not said when that story is told is that the church was greatly influenced by the secular philosopher Plato uh, in their belief that the uh, sun revolved around the earth, not just by science. But the point is, Christians can be wrong. There was a time when I believed, among with many young earth creationists, that the Bible taught a vapor canopy was around the earth, and that's where the water came for, uh, from the flood. This theory is now taken away, even by those who once promoted it. 
It's okay to not have it all right. It's okay to admit, oh, you know, I thought this and now I think it's wrong. It's okay. Christians do not have to be perfect in all things that they think and say and do. But the second reminder is also true. Scientists can be wrong too. Now, with this should be obvious to us because science is continually reversing itself. But somehow, the new ideas are always presented as if these ideas are now the absolute standard of truth. And one of the dangerous trends that is occurring, and I'm not going to go into the details of this, but one of the dangerous trends that I think is occurring in our own day is the silencing of any competing minority opinions in science. That's a very dangerous trend. When science becomes political in that way, it's not good for any of us. Third reminder, evolution has not been proven. Evolutionists have not, to this day, shown how life can randomly evolve from non-life. That has not been proven. should be a major tenet uh, in, in the whole issue. Also, evolutionists have not shown how random mutations can result in higher forms of life. Thirdly, evolutionists have not shown how gradual change over large amounts of time fits with the survival of the fittest. Just one illustration of this. The human eyeball has no purpose until it is a complete eyeball functioning with the brain. You realize that. So like a gradual development of the eyeball does no good. It doesn't help the creature until it becomes a full-fledged eyeball. It's not explained. Evolutionists have not explained the relative lack of transitional fossils. We should have found in the fossil record countless transitional animals. And the few that have been found are very questionable. Lastly, as you engage science, remember this point. Evolutionists have yet to explain morality. It's very important. We have an aversion to Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. We see the news and we react with sorrow and indignation. But if we are only highly developed mud, then our sorrow and our indignation are nothing more than advanced chemicals firing. Hardly sufficient to support righteous indignation. Also, evolutionist arguments assume uniformitarianism. Now, that's a big word. It's recently been replaced by another word called actualism. But it is the assumption that the present is the key to the past. In other words, you can understand what happened in the past from what happens now in the present. You can take what the, the different laws of the universe and you can extrapolate them back. And I think that uniformitarianism is not a bad thing. In other words, um, 
you woke up today and uh, you expected to breathe the air. You didn't like stick your head under the, the water and expect it to breathe water. You know, your, your lungs breathed air yesterday. You expect them to breathe air today. I mean, that's, a, that's uniformitarianism. Yeah, when you go to the gas pump, you don't expect your car tomorrow to take uh, watermelon juice to, to drive. You, this, the way that it worked yesterday is the way that it worked today. So we all accept uniformitarianism on some level. But uniformitarianism has its limitations. There have been two major catastrophic events in our history since the creation of the world that very few scientists take into consideration. The first is the fall, the curse. The way that this world functions prior to the curse is very different than the way that it functions after the curse. And I've talked with a lot of people on this, and it it is not even considered that that change could take place. There's a sense that the world has always existed the way it is today. The other, I think, is, is maybe less significant, but also still very significant, and that is the flood, Noah's flood, a worldwide flood. What is interesting is that even though uh, most evolutionists will deny any kind of worldwide flood, they still um, are beginning to come around to uh, catastrophic events throughout history. And that's why it's now called actualism rather than uniformitarianism. But anyway, that is a major thing. Whether you've thought about that in the past, it is uh, fundamental that the world functions differently prior to the fall and after the fall. So, it is important, if you are going to hold to a literal, regular day uh, view of creation, you still have to engage science on a regular basis. You have to do that. At the same time, I believe that it is necessary for us to continue to engage the scriptures. Try to give an example of this. When the Human Genome Project makes a statement, to the effect that genetics now provides evidence from the vastness of genetic variety that makes it impossible for the human race to have uh, evolved from one couple, okay, either some say 10,000 years ago, some say 100,000 years, doesn't matter, but they will say it is impossible for all the people and the genetic variations that we see in the world to, to exist from one couple, okay, It is appropriate as a Christian to then ask, does the Bible really teach that we came from one couple? It's an appropriate question to ask. We need to go back to the scripture and re-examine it. But asking that question does not mean that we abandon the scripture. It's a very important distinction. When the Westminster Confession was written, our own system of doctrine, back in the 1640s, there was a man named Usher, and he calculated the names and by the names and dates in Genesis to go backwards, and he actually calculated that the creation of the world occurred in 4004 B.C. Some of you actually have that in your Bibles. They'll actually have a little side note that says 4004 B.C. But even the most avid regular day creationists do not hold to that date anymore. Students of the Bible went back, compared the various genealogies in Scripture, and it is commonly accepted that there are some gaps in the genealogies. They're not absolutely there. 
I mean, it's not just, that's it. And these gaps cannot possibly account for the million years of, millions of years of evolution, but they do show that there could be more time than just 4,004 B.C. It's okay to go back and study the scriptures afresh. I bring that up to you to say that, that we don't always absolutely know that our understanding of scripture is true in every way. And it's okay to go back and study the scriptures. But this is not the same thing as placing science on par with or even above the scriptures. Science is one aspect of experientially engaging the world in which we live. We're always trying to fit our personal experience into what the pages of scripture teach us. Is, not, is that not the point of the book of Job? He's like, I don't understand. Your word tells me this. And I am experiencing something different. But like Job, we must humble ourselves and accept that our wisdom is not higher than God's. Consider the faith of Abraham when he's willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. There was nothing in his experience that helped him understand how could God's promises continue if his son Isaac was dead. But what does he do? He trusts not in his own understanding. He trusts in the word itself. The certainty of the word of God. Every day we engage a world that seems to my senses to be completely out of control. A world in which I think evil is winning. And what is it that tells you that God wins? This. What is more basic to your faith? Is it in your experience? Or is it in the word of God? What is more trustworthy, what your eyes observe or what God reveals in his word? Believing evolution requires us, requires us to radically alter some of the most fundamental doctrines of scripture. And as it does this, it requires you to place more confidence in what you understand from your own wisdom than in the revealed truth of God's word. Consider for a moment a couple things. These are just a few. Evolutionary thought requires us to believe that Adam and Eve were not the first humans to exist. There had to be a population of pre-humans, humanoids, whatever you call it, that have been evolving from lesser, uh, lower uh, animals. And there's really two options that people fall into that try to explain the Bible. One is that God takes one couple out of this larger group, and he takes one couple and chooses them as Adam and Eve. The other one, the other view, is that Adam and Eve are not, not really individual uh, people at all. They're just representative of communities. And God takes them as his own. Adam may be the federal head of the human race, but he is not the biological head of the human race. Now just think about that. Christians are teaching this, 
view of Adam and Eve. Why? Because they're trying to comport the Bible with evolution. Of course, if this is true, then it's also true that we have to reimagine Adam's interaction with Eve. Because Adam was not entirely alone in the world, was he? If there's all these other humanoids that have been developing, he's not entirely alone. So when Adam sees Eve, it must be that he's only saying she thinks like him. She's a believer like him. Vastly different than what we read as we read Genesis 2. Also, you have to begin thinking that sinful tendencies are simply uh, defined as carryovers from our prior animalistic tendencies. And as I said last week, animal death must be considered natural and good. And I would add to that the principle of decay that we see all around us. How often have you heard things like, how can I believe in a God who would allow such suffering in the world? Well, I don't have the complete answer to that question, but it sure does make a whole lot more sense to me that God, when he originally created the world, didn't have any of that. And that the world in which we live now is corrupted and changed and altered with all those forms of evil that are there in the world. And that one day God will fix it entirely. Rather than to say, oh, well, you just have to change your idea of what's bad and evil. That's just the way God made things. Theistic evolution does not result in a better understanding of the scriptures. It distorts them into something far less than what has been traditionally been given to us. The fourth of the musts. We must, we must have the utmost confidence in the scriptures. You see, God does not simply ask you to believe generalities in the scriptures. He asks you to give up your life, to give up this world based upon your confidence that what he promises to you in the scriptures are true. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I have heard Pascal's wager that a person who believes in Jesus Christ has nothing to lose if he's wrong. There's some truth to that statement. I think it was important during its time. But there are serious flaws to that. If Jesus Christ is not who he says he is and there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied among all men. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. The gospel requires of you to give up your life. Now none of us do it perfectly, we understand that. But that's the call to us. And if you're going to give your life to him, then you must be really certain that what he has told you in his scripture is true. It is only the word of God that gives us hope in our sins, 
that they have been truly dealt with at the cross. You probably came in here today wondering things like, can I ever be forgiven for my sins? Can I ever really be changed? Is there a time where I can be completely free from all sin? The Bible tells you yes and yes and yes. But if, when you read Genesis 2, if you can't trust that that's talking about a literal Adam, how can you trust the other parts of Scripture that tell us about these wonderful, glorious truths of freedom from sin? Once you undercut the ability to understand the Scriptures, you are undercutting your confidence of your own redemption. Lastly, we must remember history. And I promise you it's not a plug for my church history class. <laughs> but the adage is true. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. The battles waged by evolutionists against the Bible are relatively new in history. But the battles waged against the Bible are nothing new. How many people, show of hands, have heard of the name Friedrich Schleiermacher? A few. I had not heard of him until I first took church history in seminary. But having heard of him, I will never forget him. Maybe more than any other figure in history, he has helped me to understand that you do not have to have evil motivations to cause great damage to the church. Now, Schleiermacher was a product of the Enlightenment. He's often called the father of German liberal theology. He was born in 1768, and he died in 1834. So he lived before Darwinism comes on the scene. Schleiermacher's, I love that word, by the way, Schleiermacher, don't you just, I still can't spell it unless I look at it, but I love that name. Schleiermacher's enlightenment thinking caused him to question the validity of the Bible. He reasoned, how could a book that was so full of errors, of historical and doctrinal bent, how could their historical errors and doctrinal errors be the foundation of something so wonderful as faith and dependence upon God? You see, Schleiermacher had been raised in a pietist home. In other words, that meant that he experienced warm, heartfelt, devotional Christianity. But as he engaged with Enlightenment thinking, he began to say that the doctrines and the historical truths of Scripture could not be trusted. And here's what he did. He wasn't trying to destroy Christianity. He was trying to save Christianity. What he did in trying to save Christianity, he says, I want to take and remove my religion from, from the historical roots of the truthfulness of the Bible. And if we can separate these things from one another, then we can save Christianity and people will be redeemed by simply believing in a dependence upon God. That's all that mattered. Now, if you know anything about his influence... He is the one that was foundational to the mindset of the church in Europe in the 19th century 
and it got robbed of all evangelistic thinking. And then in the 20th century, it infected the American churches. And liberalism just destroyed, devastated the churches. And I don't care what denomination it was, when you started following liberalism, it destroyed you. There was no gospel left to preach. All this because he was trying to save the church. My fear is that when we try to to form a faith where the Bible is compatible with evolution, if we do that trying to save the church, it will run into the same destructive tendencies. Christians will look back upon us and say, what happened to the Reformed and conservative church in America? I do not hate my fellow believers who have been convinced of evolution. I certainly do not claim to be smarter than they, but I do disagree with them. And I have been disagreeing with evolutionists since the beginning of my Christian life. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very much influenced by liberalism. Uh, We trusted more in National National Geographic than we did in the Bible as an explanation of mankind. Not denouncing everything in National Geographic, but there was a a steady flow of evolutionary thinking in National Geographic. I still remember sitting in my sophomore biology class as my teacher taught persuasively evolution. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if he's correct, what does that mean about my faith? Thankfully, I had a good friend who was a committed Christian, and he was willing to stand up to that professor. I don't know what would have happened to my Christian faith if Steve had not been there. Today, Steve is a teacher in biology and anatomy, continuing to hold to a six-calendar-day creation. Having gone to a state school, everywhere I went, evolution was assumed. Again, I was very thankful for my Christian friends who helped me to maintain a strong belief in a regular day creation. One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Robin and I homeschooled our children was because we did not want them to be regularly fed evolution. We chose a curriculum very purposely. Robin says, I'm not allowed to just give this out today. But this is uh, Apologia, which is our textbooks that we used for our kids when it came to biology and other uh, sciences. This is just one example of those. You're welcome to look at it. You just can't take it. Um, Somewhat ironically, both of our children chose science degrees. I'm a communications major. That means... I had a lot of time to do other things in college. (laughs) Robin was a music major. That means she took classes where she did instruments for hours and got one credit hour. I never understood that. Um, But Michael studied physics at Grove City College. And Tara studied biology at um, Covenant College. Both of them, excellent Christian colleges. 
But it was certainly challenging to find out that in both of their majors, many, if not all of their professors, held to some form of theistic evolution. These were faithful Christians. They knew more about physics and biology than Robin and I. I still remember Tara saying, Dad, it's so great. If I have a question, my professor actually knows the answer. Robin and I wanted to encourage our kids to respect and love their Christian professors. But we also had many a discussion as to why we believed it important to continue to hold to a regular day creation. I tell you this because I think that holding to a regular day creation is not going to be easy. You must be willing to be called fools. You must continue to engage the science. You must continue to engage the scripture. You must continue to place your utmost confidence in the scriptures. And you must remember your history. I do believe in the theory of gravity. And I do not believe in the theory of evolution. I believe that all mankind has descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve. I believe that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and then breathed life into his nostrils. I believe that God took from Adam a rib and that, that rib, from that rib he forms Eve. These are not just accessories to the Christian life. They are the foundational blocks of our faith. And one day in glory, I look forward to meeting Adam and Eve. Amen.